welcome to Grow Radio, a time when we are well, halfway through the season and we find we've planted our merch or near enough or the wrong varieties. And as I've said before, then I worry we have the very folk here to help you through the season again. And we can enjoy the food and the recipes that will be forthcoming in this very episode as well. Now, let me introduce you to the team. Ready, willing and able to sort your very gardens out. Whether big or small, pots, windy boxes or nothing. Just enjoy the banter and the fresh air. And we've got plenty tea for armchair gardeners. Stories of the Scottish plant collectors. Yay! So, the team. The heat gardener himself, a past curator at the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh, Vice Chair of the National Trust for Scotland. Welcome, Dave Mitchell. Hi, Frida. It's good to see you. It's been a busy spring, but ach, it's been a query in weather-wise. I don't know about yourself it's up ne- there. It's never been an easy one, has it? It's just been a scunner. Stop, a start, scunner. all the time. All the time, aye. And in Edinburgh, we're soon sorted, and Arthur Keane Gardner. Richie Werner, hello! Hey, how we doing? You all right? I'll be fine with you. Ah, we're grand, yeah. Like Dave says, weather's been a bit funky, but we've been out and about and out in the garden as well. And my God, the wee girls are absolutely loving that. I still be just now. Full blooming, buzzing with insects. Oh, beautiful. Oh, that did good in that. And, and of course, the star of every show. Come in, or cook for the harbour. Claire Patterson, hello. Hiya, Frida. How you doing? Oh, just fine. We're just niping and chaving on, as they say. Okay, fix your, fix your menu this time, Claire. Oh, well, the polytunnel's so full of lovely green veg at the moment. We've got a laxa with some courgette noodles, some pickled white turnips, chard with pancetta and white beans, and to finish off, a red gooseberry syllabub. Oh, my goodness, we. All right. Let's get started. Uh, this is a question for our chum in Trinent, Steve Byrne, and he tenured his first allotment last year. And his first question is this, and he sent in. He couldn't have managed to join us this time, but he said, can I send in some questions? And he did. He says, I feel like I think it's about a month ahead this year. It was that cold in the spring. We just said that. And I couldn't plant things on in the allotment for fear of losing them. No, they're in the ground. Is there anything I can do to give them a good boost? Mainly brassicas. Dave, over to you. Well, it's often true what Steve's been saying there. It's been stop, start, warm, cold, plants didn't ken what they're doing. It's the same with me. Some of my veggies are a wee bit of just, they're only just starting to get away now. Some of my salad crops, I've had to sow them again, get them going properly. But I think so long as July and August is fine, again, we should manage to get a, a feed, as it were, between now and the end of the year. My tatties are great. My carrots, well, they're getting there. But now, as regards Steve's brassicas, I think the best thing to do with them is to give them a wee bit extra feed. And you could do that by hoeing in a high nitrogen fertiliser, like grow more, or blood and bone meal. Or you could give them a balanced liquid feed, again NPK, 10, 10, 10, it doesn't matter what you're in. You put that around the neck of the plant every two or three weeks, again, with the water and can in the rows through July and August. If you want to give them a wee bit of a blast and shove them really hard, you could give them some miracle grow or phosphogen, it's a wee bit higher in nitrogen. The other thing that's worth trying is there's a company called DT Browns that has a grand seed catalogue. They've got a plant tonic. It's called Plant Tonic Number no. 8. It's a biostimulant and it contains seaweed extract and yucca extract and stuff called chitosin. And it helps to improve photosynthesis. It helps to make plants grow that wee bit better when the weather's cold and erratic and it improves the uptake of moisture and it kind of improves the health of the soil. 
But mind, if you're applying liquid feed to the foliage or as a drench through the roots, you always want to do it in the evening when the sun's no about. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you scorch the leaves. Now, you mentioned that, that you're going to sow some mare salads, and that's one of my questions. In fact, I was speaking to Claire earlier on, and she said, I'm going to ask uh, Dave something similar. Am I overweight in, in sowing no, salads? No, 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 you get them in, get them in, put some in now, put some in again in three weeks' time, and some three weeks after that. They might be late and maturing and not be quite as big, but if you get a warm July, August, they'll get away. I mean, we used to do salad crops like that, radishes and lettuce and stuff. We used to do them on top of the, the side of the celery trench, again, where it, the, the soil had been thrown out, and then you would leave it lying there so that you could earth the celery up. But while it was lying out in a pile for six, eight weeks in the middle of the summer, mm -hmm. we used to get a, what they called a catch crop off it. Mm, well, maybe touch that subject later on, because a lot of folk are asking about, is it too late? Right. Now, this is not so much a gardening question, but mere a, a word, a caution. I have a six-month-old puppy, and it's turbocharged and loves chasing the toads in my greenhouse. I try to stop her, of course. And to my knowledge, she has not caught any. Till no, till no. But the other day, she was really unwell, folks, and was frothing at the move, really worrying. So, Dave, is this related, do you think? Oh, well, toads, didn't get things wrong. Toads are the gardener's friend because they've got a big appetite for all the varmints like caterpillars and beetles and slugs and spiders and snails and wood lice and ants. A big one will even tuck a wee moose. Wow. They're, no. You know, aye, they will. Aye, oh, aye. And they're good at looking after themselves because they're able to produce a foul-tasting toxin for wee warty glands in their skin. It looks like milk. And it has a really unpleasant taste, and it's that that would make the dog foam at the mouth. Now, you don't really want dogs chasing toads in the greenhouse, you know, but the toad, he keeps the greenhouse clean and environment free. Get the choice of hearing the dog in the greenhouse, or Mr. Toad, I'm afraid I'd be hearing the dog outside. And there's another reason for that, because there's a mm -hmm. lot of other things in greenhouses that just are no good for dogs, you know, liquid mm -hmm. feeds and bits and pieces like that. You can, toads can become really friendly if you feed them wee tidbits like mealworms. And I've even heard folks saying that if you've gone in the greenhouse after you've been feeding you in for a while and you say, Toady, Toady, come on, where are you, Toady? He'll come hoping <laughs> out to see you. No, oh. I'm toads. telling you, I've heard folks say that, so there you are. There you are. You just leave it. Mr. Toad alone in the greenhouse. That's his domain. And the dog, there's plenty of room outside for the dog. I've never kind of was hearing this on. What do you think? A pet toad. Now we've got to the stage of, is this true? Da, 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 da. So the moral of the story, dinner eight toads. <laughs> dinner eight toads and dinner eight dogs and greenhouses. Oh, well, Evie's just not half easy to keep a note on, I think, I can tell you. But the good news is she's back to her turbocharged wee cell. Yeah. And on the, on the note of dogs... You might hear tummies rumbling coming from this direction. It's nae me. It's the it's nae Evie. It's the, it's the other dog lying here. Their tummy is rumbling. <laughs> I had to blame Richie, and it was Richie. Hey, it listen, you can't Richie's blame me one. today. And listen, for no. what it's worth, my mum's nickname for me when I was a kid was Toad. So there you go. That's, that, 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 that's quite an honour to be called Toad. It meant, you had a big health, it meant you had a big healthy appetite, Richie. <laughs> Explains oh, a lot, now. <laughs> oh, no, no. On that note, just to tuck our minds off the slugs and beasts so outrageous fortune, let me welcome our programme cook again, Claire Geezer, first two recipes. 
Well, I'm going to start today, Frida, with a laksa with courgette noodles. So a laksa is a, it's a beautiful, spicy, coconutty, soupy stew from Malaysia. And in this case, I'm going to instead of the rice noodles, which are traditional, I'm going to use spiralised courgettes. You can do this with a wee tool that you get for a couple of quid at most kitchen departments, or you get them online, and they're brilliant because you can do courgettes, you can do carrots for salads, and it just gives you these big, long, beautiful strands. Um, my tip is remember to cut them because otherwise you end up with a courgette noodle that's a bit four metres long, <laughs> which is a wee bit challenging, and I've, I've been there. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh, so for the laxa, you can use a shop-bought paste or you can make your own, which is from shallots, garlic, ginger, lemongrass, chilies, some coriander stalks, a wee bit of ground coriander and a wee bit of vegetable oil just whizzed up into or ground up into a paste. You cook that very gently in a wee bit more oil for about 15 minutes until it's really aromatic. And then you add coconut milk, vegetable stock, a branch or two of curry leaves, if you if you get them, they're becoming more popular and they add a really beautiful flavour. bit of salt, sugar, a wee bit of curry powder, and you just simmer that together and you add in whatever your seasonal vegetables of choice. So when you spiralise the courgettes, you'll get a kind of core left over, so I'd chop that up and stick it in. Maybe some charred green beans, runner beans, anything you like. And then just before serving, add your courgette noodles just at the last minute. Uh, with a bit of lime juice and some chopped coriander leaves. And it's just a beautiful, hearty, fresh, soupy, lovely soupy. dinner. I, I, that's, <laughs> that's a good thing because I never came for to do with my courgettes. You know, I just slice them and fry them and that's it. Well, there's always a lot this time of year, eh? There's, <laughs> there's no shortage of courgettes. <laughs> oh, okay. Next in. Next in is some pickled white turnips. Now, you know me, I love a pickle. And since the polytunnels fade over rum with white turnips this year and everyone's had enough of them roasted, this is something else and it will go lovely with your summer barbecues and buffets and all those kind of things. If you've got really young turnips, you don't need to peel them. If they've got a tougher skin, take that off. Slice them up, cut them into batons, maybe a centimetre or so. And you also would peel and slice a wee beetroot, just a little beetroot to add a wee bit more flavour and just colours everything pink, which is always a good thing in the summer. Mm. You make a brine, pint of water, three or four tablespoons of salt and a couple of bay leaves and a couple of bashed garlic cloves. Dissolve the salt and then add half a pint of white wine vinegar. Pour that over your vegetables and then you just pop that in the fridge for maybe like five days or so just to let it sort of mellow a bit mm-hmm. um, before you serve. And that's great, like I say, with your grilled meats and stuff in the barbecue or as part of a kind of tapas or a metsy or just with anything. Gooding! Wow. I, like I, I like the idea of growing uh, little white turnips. I've never thought of that. Aye. Could I grow that in the greenhouse, Dave? Aye! Because I've tried growing swades in, in the greenhouse. That doesn't work. Well, it'd be too warm. You'd try the wee turnips outside. That's a good idea. So, right. We say that this programme's for armchair gardeners as well, and this is the very topic we have looked at. Dave has been hulking about in the stories of the Scottish plant collectors. A foot far, we'll we'll win a lot of the plants we have in our gardens. Now, David, it's a big topic and we'll do half on this program then half on our mother hub scotch radio so for this session far do we hear about first well you can i've been researching these fellas throughout the whole of my career frida you know and when he first asked me about this it was relation to north america 
can it be in the 4th of July and round about now and Independence Day and all that. So I thought this time we'd just focus on Scots who went to North America. And the first year to venture out professionally was actually the first plant collector that was employed in that way from the Royal Botanic Garden at Kew. And his name was a fellow called Francis Masson. And he come from up about Uriot. He was born in Aberdeen in 1741. But he worked mainly in South Africa and in warmer climates. But by 1797, he actually went to Canada, where he was to gather plants for King George III and send his seeds back to Joseph Banks at Kew. He had a hard life in Canada, Mason. He really did. And he eventually become ill, and he kind of fell out with Banks. And like, he, he wanted to come home, and they wouldn't let him come home. And then by the time he got granted permission to come home, he'd passed away, sadly. So, But oh, that's a story for another day. But talking about Banks as director of Kew, he was responsible for employing most of the early Scottish plant collectors. And he liked Scots as plant collectors because he's reputed to have said they were hard-working, diligent, frugal, and they weren't prone to complain. You know? And interestingly, by the end of the late 1800s, 1940s, there were some 20 major Scottish plant collectors and another 30 for buy. Wow. You know? And they went all over the world. Asia and South America and Antipodes, you know, and we can look at some of the other ones again. But the, the first big one was a fella called Archibald Mingus, and he was born near Aberfeldy, a place called Wim, and he, he was a pathfinder in a lot of roads. You know, he studied at school and he went to Edinburgh University and he studied under John Hope and okay, he went to work at the Royal Botanic Garden in Edinburgh. And then he eventually graduated with a degree in medicine and he became a surgeon for the Navy. And he was sent for a while to the East Coast of North America and the Caribbean. And then as a result of what he did there, really of his own volition, John Hope, his former tutor, recommended him to Joseph Banks to join a ship called the Prince of Wales with a man called Captain Collett, which was bound for the Pacific via Cape Horn. And it was a voyage that was designed really to develop the fur trade. I mean, imagine leaving Scotland and going away across the Atlantic and round Cape Horn and up into the Pacific in the days when you didn't have a clue where you were going, you know. Mm -hmm. It was an amazing journey. And he arrived on the west side of Vancouver Island and he really was the first person to see things like Capressus nut catensis and Rosa nut catana and Rubus parviflorus. And he actually went right around the world on that voyage. It took three years. And he came home via the Cape of Good Hope. And as a result of that, he ended up working at Kew. And he was working for Banks. And then he was sent off to sail again in 1791 with Captain Vancouver on a vessel called HMS Discovery. And that was a five-year voyage around the Cape of Good Hope, Australia, New Zealand, Tahiti and Hawaii. And he, he collected the Douglas fir, but he didn't kind of recognise what it was because he'd never seen it before. And he was also one of the first people to identify the giant redwoods. He saw them, he made a note of them, and he introduced lupins and things like Pinus radiata. And he went to Hawaii and he climbed Mauna Loa and eventually ended up in Chile. And he was here in dinner with the Viceroy. And the dessert included some fancy-looking nuts that he didn't recognise. So he, he took a wheen and he stuck them in his pooch and he germinated them. And they survived. And that was the first introduction of the monkey puzzle. Ah. ah. You know? And then I suppose the next big name we've got is 
David Douglas, he again came from Persia. He was educated as a gardener's boy at Schoon Palace. And he worked in a place called Valleyfield in Fife. And he had access to the library there. And he went on to, you know, work for William Hooker at Glasgow Botanic Garden. And then he set off to go into America. And he, oh, his, his journals describe his work for the Horticultural Society of London. Originally, he was supposed to go to China, but there was kind of trouble in China, so that's why they sent him to the United States. And, you know, he went to the Pacific coast eventually, and, oh, he collected on the Columbia River, which he described as his highway to the floral wealth of North America. And he introduced things like Rosa Chardon and Cornus alba and Mahonia aquifolium and Mimulus and lupins and the wee Californian yellow poppies, the Scotsia California. And of course, the best thing in a lot was what we call the Douglas fir today, Pseudosuga menziesi. Mm -hmm. And the whole expedition cost £400, wow. which was a fortune in those days. But the feeling was that for that one plant alone, it was worth the investment. I mean, he saw the sequoias, but he didn't describe them. And he was given the opportunity to come home at that point. And then they wanted him to go to Russia, but he said, no, I want to stay where I am. And he, he, he nearly drowned and lost all his possessions. I mean, a lot of these fellas had hard and adventurous lives. I mean, they really did when you read about them. But he introduced about some 670 species, many of them new, never seen before. And then eventually, I think he was just, he was tired. And he, he kind of, maybe even a wee bit of scunner. And he just thought, oh, I've had enough. And he wanted to go on to Hawaii. So it took him some six months to get to Hawaii. And he followed in the footsteps of Menzies, climbing Mauna Loa. But he had an oversaw ending. Mm -hmm. um, he died in an accident. He fell into a pit trap um, that was set for feral pigs. But when I think about the Scottish plant collectors, he's the one that I think changed the face of our landscape and our gardens forever. You know, because he introduced so many conifers for North America that just changed our, our landscape and the way it looks and the way it appears. Mm -hmm. He's an, an, an amazing man. And I mean, to me, when I look at things like Ribes sanguinium, you can read flower and current you see in mm -hmm. the spring. Mm -hmm. That was first introduced by David Douglas. So I wow. never look at that, but I think about that wee man that came from near Schoon Palace in Perth and travelled right across the world. But there's plenty more. I'll tell you about a few more in a minute or two. Okay. And of course, Schoon Palace has a, a fantastic array of trees in their grounds oh, that folk can go and see, isn't it? A fantastic amount of trees in there that folk can identify with. And uh, just to your on Francis uh, Masson, maybe it's my imagination, but far was the Ian that invented a, a, a magic fertiliser. Was, was that him? No, 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 no. That was that. You're thinking about Willie Forsyth and the Playster. <laughs> no, no, we're not. That was a mixture of horse manure and water, and he got oh, paid. Okay. He got paid fifteen hundred pound for the recipe. It was supposed to cure oak trees for disease, but that, that's another story. But every time I look at the Forsythia, I think about William Forsyth, far comfy up your ear, and managed old, to get a lot of Meldrum. money. He was born in old. That's Meldrum. right, old Meldrum. Yeah. But mm -hmm. he got he got paid fifteen hundred pound for selling the government a recipe for a load of horse manure. There you are. <laughs> I'm saying no more about that. Gary. It's just and I've got I've got uh, uh, some baby Douglas firs out the back in my wee my wee nursery and I planted some Douglas firs far out in the parks just this very year. 
just just a, just imagine that man going to have that length to try and get these trees back to back to us. Thank you very, 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 very much for that, Mr. Mr. Mitchell. Not a problem. No, we're rumbling through the summer. Usual carry-ons with weather, but this is family Santa route to the garden to pick a few salad leaves and herbs, saunter back, singing happily as we sing, swinging our trugs, merrily. <laughs> we dream, aye, aye. I love my sandwich, and I grow a lot of oriental varieties, which I'm proud to say. I often add to soups, Claire, aye. as well with noodles and chicken and ingins, and it's lovely. I love the Wagamama-style soups with the big leaves. But this year, my big leaves, like big pack choice, have wee holes in some of them. Dave, I sent through uh, a picture of the leaves, fish cousins and thick can I need to stop this happening? Well, I had a look at your photographs, Aye. and I think the culprit is actually small white butterfly caterpillars. No. All right, because basically, unless you protect the young plants with fine net or fleece, these insects will lay their eggs on the leaves. Mm. And... I'm pretty certain that's what it is looking at it. So mm -hmm. it's, you can't do anything about the ends that are damaged now, no. but for future years, you can either use a bit of fleece on them or you get a material, a product called Grazer's G3, which you can spray on them and that helps to stop the butterflies from laying their eggs on the foliage. All you can really do now is to inspect them regularly, pick off any yellow or white eggs that you find as well as any emerging caterpillars, you could maybe spray with something that contains natural perethrins or synthetic perethrins, kind of like Bug Clear or Prevanto. I did think for a wee while, was it flea beetle? But I th the damage is no right for flea beetle damage. The holes are too big. But if it was, the control measures would just be the same as it was, again, for the, uh, the, the, the cabbage white butterfly. Mm -hmm. And of course, Mister Mister Toad, he'll gobble up the wee scunners if he sees them mm -hmm. running about. So, didn't you be discouraging, Mister Toad? Well, you see, this is my worry. I don't like spraying anything as you can. I, no. I like to be totally organic, and I don't want to, to interfere with me, with the toads either because they wouldn't like me spraying things either. So they're half a happy, apart from their rival, Evie Puppy Dog, in the, in the world. Uh, they were half a happy just sauntering about, galloping about in the, the greenhouse. No toads didn't gallop to the day. Lump, that's it. Lump. They didn't yeah. gallop and toads. Well, Unless the dog's gallop. after them. Unless the dog's <laughs> Steve has another question about the cow weather. I'll just read what he says. With the cow weather, I've had things sitting in modules or pots in a bit longer than is ideal. Is there a risk to seedlings if you pot them on our many times before they get in the ground? I've been maybe a bit cautious and no one to pot things on three or four times until the weather improves. But I can see some seedlings can I pause or get stunted. Fitch your advice there, Dave. Well, personally, I don't like planting out vegetable seedlings or young plants that are in pots only bigger than sort of three inches, seven centimetres, especially if you want the roots to spread quickly and effectively. And they're not so keen to do that if they become pot-bound or if they're settled in big pots. It's also, you've got to be practical. Kind of three-inch pot's easy to handle. When they get bigger than that, they're mere awkward. Basically, you want plants to be hungry and searching. So when you put them in the ground, they get away and they get started. They don't like to be checked. That's the other thing. And I'm just wondering if some of the stuff that Steve's got's maybe maybe being checked a wee bitty. But, uh, you know, all in all, three-inch pots, you're fine. 
get them out. And if if you're worried about putting them out a wee bit too early because it's chilly, just put some fleece over them, and that, that that's the best you can do. You know. Mm -hmm. mm. Right now, our program cook Claire Patterson has been creating her culinary wonders again. Gives your next to Claire. Okay, Frida, the next one, we've got some leafy greens. Ours have got wee holes in them as well, so it's not just you. <laughs> but um, I've got chard with pancetta and white beans. So this is delicious in its own, or you can top it to make it a bit more hearty with some grilled white fish, like a hake or something like that. So I'd fry some cubes of pancetta just until the fat starts to run. Add in a sliced onion, cook that until it's tender. Then a, bit, a wee bit of chicken stock, no too much, because mm -hmm. you're going to get a good bit of water coming off that chard. A drained can of cannellini beans, or butter beans, or whatever your favourite white bean is. And a couple of good handfuls of chopped chard. So usually I would take the stalks off, slice them up if they're big, and then just sort of roughly chop the leaves. Cook that until the chard wilts down, and then that's you. Easy peasy. Ten minutes. <laughs> Ten minutes. Whoa. And then to finish up um, with something sweet, we've got a red gooseberry syllabub. So it's that time of year. All the berries are starting in the fruit cage, which is a great moment. I also dread it a bit because we've got 10 blackcurrant bushes, so there's going to be a oh, lot of picking. Oh, man. <laughs> 10's too many. So for this one, I'd make a compote from the red gooseberries. So with those gooseberries they're really sweet so you only need a wee teeny teeny wee bit of sugar a wee splash of elderflower cordial and just cook that down till they're soft if you're using normal gooseberries the green ones you probably want a wee bit more sugar or it's going to be right tart leave that to cool and then when you're ready to make the syllabub whip up half a pint of whipping cream a couple of tablespoons of sweet white wine or marsala or a sweet sherry a wee bit of ice and sugar zest and juice a half a lemon and then just fold those gooseberries into that before you serve it. And that's a really lovely, easy-peasy summer pudding. Easy-peasy. You notice the amount of times Claire says easy-peasy. Easy-peasy, yeah. Easy-peasy. <laughs> easy <-peasy. laughs> uh, well, actually, I haven't, I haven't really uh, spoken to you much this episode. That's fair. Have you got any anything growing that you can eat? I'll uh, tell you what really year? surprised me, and actually I wish I'd told you at the start of the show, but the weird one, I just realised it, because it's only the start of July, is I had Isabel and Helena picking raspberries in the garden oh. uh, at the end of June. At the end of June, aye. Wow. Did that not seem a bit early for rasps? So no. Anyway, they were delicious, they loved them. <laughs> but wasn't that funny? My rasps are ready. Aye. There's, some, there's some things going early, there's some things coming late. I mean, I have no crochets. And no cucumbers ready yet. It's really weird. Fucking fits happening. Fucking. <laughs> uh, Claire, you have another question, haven't you? Oh, I do. Um, I've got a question about carrots. So this is my, my good friend, one of our local growers, is having awful bother with her carrots. So she's wondering how late is too late for planting carrots outside? And the reason she's asking is she's lost a couple of rotations to slugs. Oh. So. Also, what can we do about slugs? <laughs> oh, that's Especially one now. Oh, man. Okay, David? Well, let's take the first bit of the question. It's no too late to sow carrots outside. You know, if you get it done in the next sort of week, 10 days, you know, maybe a, a sowing then and then maybe another sowing a fortnight later. Mind it could be in uh, October, even early November before they're suitable for harvesting. But you get varieties like fly away which is resistant to carrot fly, and resist a fly. Both of them are F1 hybrids. We RHS Awards of Garden Merit. You'll get good colour of them, and they have a strong, sweet flavour. 
And there's another variety in that DT Brown catalogue again or on their website, which is a main cropper called Autumn King, and it can be sown this late. As regards keeping slugs at bay, well, <laughs> there's you know, the RHS have declared that slugs and snails are no longer pests because ah. they're good for the garden. And personally, I don't like putting down um, slug pellets and things like that. My quick tip would be, apart from the beer trap, a couple of bricks and a slate on top of it, and they'll soon find their way in the hotel slate, and then you can <laughs> pick the slate up and dispose of them accordingly after that. Hotel slate? Thank you, Mike. Got holidays underneath the slate. Oh, I'm going on my holidays under the slate, and he turned the slate up, he goes, you're getting the bucket, boy, you know. <laughs> Claire had another question for me. I've got another question. So when we're at home, all our growing around our house is in pots. And mm -hmm. we use our homemade compost because we get loads of veg scraps from work. So it's all, we've got tons of it. And that's what we grow in predominantly. And we're just wondering, is there disadvantages to growing this way? Or is it a big advantage to growing stuff in the grounds? Because at the moment we're all pots, but should we be trying to well, put more stuff in? Container gardening has advantages and it's affordable. It's accessible. It's adaptable. And it's also decorative and it's focused and practical and you can shift things around about. It's also quite good for people that are renting property because you can move things easily when you move, if you move or whatever you do. It's good for folk with young children because the containers are often at their height and you don't need a lot of garden tools and equipment and the weeding's very limited. But in balance, you might need to water more. Mm -hmm. You might need to feed a wee bit more. And, you know, in your case, planting things in a north-facing situation in one of the wettest parts of Scotland, that made me think about New Zealand for some reason, because it's quite wet in New Zealand. And I thought, what could you do that was funky, different, and a talking point? And I thought, containers with things like shield fern, maidenhaired fern, and a Japanese painted fern, maybe even a couple of big tree ferns, you know, either side of the door, and underneath planted them with things like astelias and creposmia and mycenes and pittosporums and Akinis, you know, there's lots of stuff there. I can imagine in this bit of New Zealand, either side of the front door, covering fairy lights at Christmas, that would just be dandy. Such a good idea, Claire. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. I look forward to seeing a photograph in two or three years' time. Aye, we've got idea. a bit of colour by the door. Yeah, <laughs> you cool. need that. It looks a bit sad at the moment. <laughs> I'll tell you something. I've got uh, in the pots at the very door of the studio here, I've got two pots and they've got ferns and rock seedum in them and they're just fantastic. Look, you know and that, that, that's quite an interesting contrast because Aye. the rock sedum's quite fleshy Aye. and the ferns are soft and feathery. Mm -hmm. So you get that contrast in texture and shape. And, and that's they, they're nice after. together. Aye. Oh, they will. Uh, Lovely. A bit punk, you know. A bit punk. <laughs> right. Now, earlier Dave Mitchell was telling us about a couple of our famous Scottish plant collectors, Archibald Menzies and David Douglas. Fars next. Far would you direct us towards Dave? Well, I want to talk to you about a fella called John Jeffrey, and he came from Perthshire and all. He was born near Forneth in 1826. We don't know a lot about his early life, but he did end up in the employment of the Royal Botanic Garden. And that was something that was to shape the rest of his life, because sometime around 1848, a number of Scottish estate owners wanted conifers for their estates, 
And with the help of the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh, they came together to form something that was known as the Oregon Association. And they needed somebody to send out to North America to go in the footsteps of Menzies and Douglas and collect seeds. Now, Geoffrey was chosen for this job and he set sail in the June and he arrived in Canada in the August. And he arrived in Hudson's Bay. That man walked, walked across Canada. 1,200 miles with often nothing but the cover of the pine trees while he slept. And I remember reading a letter that was written on large full scarf paper in his own handwriting and pen and drawing up the side of the letter. And the letter, the piece of paper is about 15, 16 inches long, was a tree. And at the bottom of it was a picture of himself sleeping. And he had been writing to his mother and he was saying, Yes, mother, the trees really are this big. You know, it was just such, you felt as though you were touching the man's life. So he walked right across Canada to the Columbia River, 1,200 miles. I mean, I can't imagine the strength of character that that feat required, let alone mm -hmm. the physical endurance. And he collected things in the Fraser River, Abies Grandies, Pinus albicollis, Rhododendron albiflorum, it's a whole lot of things. Tosuga heterophila, William Washington Anum, he collected that in the Trinity Mountains. And he sent back three or four packages to the UK, but they didn't all arrive, sadly. Some of them got lost on the journey. And then he made his way down the Sierra Nevada, connecting Oregon to California, something that Douglas had never really had the opportunity to achieve. And he had collected a lot of important plants there, and he reached San Francisco. And his last collection of plants was sent in 1854 and at that point his three-year contract with the Oregon Association had finished but there was some feeling among these people that employed him that his last season hadn't been as successful as it should be so somebody was sent get away out there to America and see where this man is because we've sent him money and he's he's not there and we're not sure and when they arrived, this fellow, when they arrived in San Francisco, there were no letters of association in the mail to them. There was nothing hadn't written to them. The British consulate had no idea where he was. And there was some suggestion that maybe he'd got caught up in the gold rush, but I think he was too honest a fellow for that. Another story said that they thought he'd perished from thirst in the desert. There was even stories that he'd been murdered. And there was another Ian. I'm not going to tend to like this. He'd fallen for an Indian squaw, and he just said, you can what, here, lass, come on, let's just get away to the high country. But in many respects, I think Jeffrey could be said to have succeeded where Douglas, aye, maybe Douglas had failed. But you have to remember, he was travelling 20 years later in an era with improved communication, better infrastructure and support. And as his employers were really only interested in trees, a lot of his herbaceous plant introductions were overlooked. I mean, he introduced things like erythroniums and fritillarias and other conifers that are very special, like librocedrus and, you know, delphiniums and other pent stemmings. You know, I, I think he's somebody who deserves to be just much better known. And, you know, you said earlier that if you want to find out more about the Scottish plant collectors, and the explorers, you can join us in Scots Radio in a mm -hmm. few days' time when we'll be talking about other folk that are less wheel-kent than Douglas and Menzies, 
But nonetheless, they had an off adventurous life and they changed their gardens and be introducing plants for North America. Oh, Dave, what a super bunch of stories that is. Well, there's a lot behind these folk, Frida. You know, right. they, they really were remarkable people. I love the stories of the plant collectors. One question to me. When you say they sent back the plants, how did they How did they store the plants to send them back? Well, when we say sent back plants, that's in the broadest sense. Most things came back as seeds. Uh -huh. 90% of things would come back as seeds. If they were travelling, as you'll find out when we're talking about the next tranche on Scots Radio, some of them actually did bring live plants back, but we'll talk more about that next time right. you know and then also they also sent back plants as dried specimens with descriptions and they were just as important as the seed because it allowed scientists and others to understand the diversity of vegetation that existed in other parts of the world fabulous mm. Dave, thank you so much for for the stories i love them and i think they are treasures in themselves Right, where do we go to? I've got a question for Claire, actually, and uh, we're going to turn our, our attention to food again. I have ambitions regarding my barbecue. I have just got an Ozpig oven for outside. Okay, Ozpig. This is my attempt to save money on the electric oven. I still have memories of seven days of food power in the house after the storms. Hence the outside oven. This thing is just marvellous. I love it. But I'm still experimenting with it. It's powered with wood. You can use charcoal, but you can work a lot of wood find doing trees after the storms as well, but we have to dry them out. Right. It does barbecue grills as well, Claire. These are simple recipe for the barbecue. <laughs> simple. Oh, it sounds like a good bit right. of kit you got there, Frida. This is all the rage, this outside kitchens. This is right. the new thing, isn't it? Right. So probably like when you think barbecue you always think things on things on sticks things on skewers so i'd do a really simple kebab with maybe chunks of sausage wedges of onion some boiled new potatoes any other veggies you've got mushrooms chunks of courgette peppers thread them onto a skewer grill them and then brush them with a barbecue sauce either one that you like that you've bought or you can make one i like one based on the one from franklin's in austin which is a famous barbecue restaurant where you sweat a chopped onion, plenty of butter, and then you add in ketchup, cider vinegar, brown sugar, salt, pepper, garlic powder, lemon juice, wee bit of cayenne for a wee bit of heat. And that's delicious and it keeps really well. Just brush it on anything, makes it absolutely amazing. <laughs> and do you brush it on um, like uh, olive oil when you first put it on the barbecue? What I would probably do is I'd probably put all those ingredients in a bowl, a wee drizzle of oil, Give them a toss together before I thread them on. So they've all got a wee coating, so they're not going to stick. And then just once everything's cooked, or sort of 90% cooked, that's when you put on your barbecue sauce. Because if you put it on too early, it's going to burn. So because of the sugar and the ketchup and things. Oh, right. So, yeah, wee bit of oil at the start, sauce at the end. I'm going to hear bash at that. Thank you, Claire. Right, we finish off with the one and only Dave Mitchell again. Out to you for folk been uh, asking about baskets and boxes at this time of year. Dave, advice, please. Well, I've had a wee of friends commenting this year that hanging baskets and window boxes have been drying out. And, you know, a few words of wisdom on this. I think one of the first things you can do when you make your basket up is to add a wee bit extra well-rotted leaf mould in the bottom. And you could also think about adding some of that Dalefoot wool-based potting compost. You could also think about adding water-retaining granules that are easily bought online or in store. 
But if you're using the water retaining granules, you need to use them with the manufacturer's recommendation. Don't put a wee wee extra in thinking you're being good because when they swell up, all that'll do is push the plants and push the compost out of the pot. But, you know, when you're thinking about your hanging basket, I think the most important thing, check it for watering regularly. You can do that by either lifting it down or by having a hose with a long lance on it. Now, I have a hose with a long lance on it. But the other thing that I do when I water my hanging basket is I put a bucket on the ground underneath so that when the water goes right through the basket, it goes into the bucket, most of it. And then you can take that water and you can put it on another container or somewhere else in the mm -hmm. garden rather than just wasting it because water is a very precious resource. You should feed your hanging basket regularly, certainly every 14 days through June, July, and aye, maybe even into August, you know. Deadhead it regularly to encourage flowers. And the other thing is, you know, water your baskets in the morning, aye, before you've had your coffee, even better, before you've had your breakfast. You should never water baskets in the heat of the day when it's sunny because you'll scorch them. And, you know, as regards what are you going to put in them, gosh, the world's your oyster. I mean, to me, lobelia is an absolute must, you know, and I like things like fuchsias and geraniums and the New Guinea impatiens, especially in a shadier spot, do really well. Pansies, trailing ivies, they're all good doers and value for money. A lot of folk like things like begonia semifirens and verbenas, yeah, I find they can be a wee bit fickle with me. They're not so keen on the wind. and I, I think different things like ferns and succulents and grasses, and there's a wonderful thing called Lotus Bertolotii, parrot beak. It's got silvery foliage. It's like wee needles coming out of a piece of string, silver string, and it's got beautiful red flowers on it, like a parrot's beak. You can do baskets with strawberries and pansies. That can be eye-catching. You can put the same things into window boxes. You know, you can do salads and stuff like that in a window box. To be honest, if you've got a shelf, you can hear a garden. But we all think about hanging baskets for the summer. But I'd encourage you to try new things and think about a hanging basket for the winter. Hmm. With many cyclamen, colourful heaths and heathers, hellebores, maybe ornamental cabbage, snowdrops, winter flowering iris, miniature daffodils. The thing I like about a hanging basket is if you're making your own, you can be really creative. If you have any time to make your own, pay a wee bit more for one and buy a good one. You get some of them that you get self-watering trays in them as well now. They're very good. I had a year when I was very busy and I, I used them one year. And oh, they were grand. I, I, I really liked it. And at the end mm -hmm. of the season, I kept the basket and I reused them now. You know, So have fun with your baskets. Have fun with your window boxes. And if it fails, just put it down to experience and try something else. My hanging baskets are just for nasturtiums, tamthoons, and they're easy to grow. You gather the seed, gather the seed in the autumn, and, you know, you get a pile of seed for, for nothing, and you plump them in a pot, cover them with some some earth, keep them dry, and just water them in the spring and up they come again. It's just mm. magical. Uh, nasturtiums, nasturtiums are very good and very biddable, and, of course, you can, you can actually, I think I'm right in saying, you can harvest the seeds and pickle them. Mm-hmm. They're just like you, keepers. You can, aye. And you, you can eat the flowers as well. I can. And I think, am I right in saying, Claire, you can eat the young leaves too? Aye, you oh, can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. you can put them in a salad. Peppery, mm -hmm. peppery they're, taste. They're, you know? they're peppery. Really lovely. 
And they're beautiful because they're different to your sort of standard salad leaves. So just be pops and a big salad just look so beautiful, especially if you get mm-hmm. the flowers uh, in there as well. Shape, you know, a different uh, shape, you know, they're different shape in a salad, you know. Well, I'm, I'm just, I, I was looking how to kind of eat the, reduce the, the bills, you know, reduce and keep the money doing the, the expenses. So these these are a, a good example of how you can just harvest the seeds one year and hey, the flowers are next and keep going and use them for pots and, and hanging baskets. Dave, thank you very much for that. And as I said, name it, you've just started Wabbing there. And I hope you've enjoyed our Danner doing the garden croft in this new season. And dinner pick off, just get into your garden and your pots. Now, here's the email address to send your emails or your phone recordings. It's info at growradio.com. And if you want to download over to the Scots Radio website, it's www.scotsradio.com. And as Dave mentioned, we'll be doing the second half of the plant collectors in that in that programme. You know, it's a lovely, lovely series of wee stories and in the year of stories, this is ideal. Right. Are you ready, dudes? On behalf of the team, Dave Mitchell, Richie Werner, Claire Patterson, and of course, Steve Byrne in Absentia, and myself, Frida Morrison. Enjoy your garden. Bye the new. Bye the new. Bye. 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 Bye.